0: This is Lifting the Lid, conversations
1: with fascinating people living life on their terms. Our next guest requires no introduction.
0: Okay, on today's episode of Lifting the Lid, we have Osher Ginsberg, the host of some of Australia's favourite reality TV shows, including The Bachelor franchise, The Masked Singer, not to mention a whole back catalogue, including Australian Idol. Welcome, Osher.
1: Hi, buddy. How are you today?
0: Very well, thank you, mate. Now, for a guy who has interviewed everybody,
1: it's quite daunting, so take (laughs) it easy on me. No, no, no. There's there's nothing... Everyone's just a human being, man. No matter who you're interviewing, every single one of them got up and took a shit that morning. All right. (laughs) (laughs) Right, they did. <laughs> Good point. Good point. So, you, at the very least, you have that in common with this other person. Like, they woke up today, unless they've you know been in a four-day bender. They woke up. They had a pee. They checked their phone. They did a poo. They probably ate something. All right, you've already done. You're, you're human, just like anybody else, man. You know, we all navigate this experience differently. And I guess that's what the interview is about. Sure is, mate. Okay, well, look,
0: I'll start off. I've got a few why questions. Yeah, sure. Um But let's start with why you first decided you'd
1: like to have a career in the entertainment industry. <laughs> I don't know, man. I was, I was a kid and like, you know, kids are impressionable. And there's something about being on stage that made everything feel better. And I just wanted to chase it as much as possible. And um, I auditioned. At uh, the end of grade 12, I auditioned for a bunch of acting courses at uh, uni and um, didn't get into any of them. And my acting ability has not improved since. The only acting I've ever done is to actually play myself in television roles. Um, so, was an Offspring? You did one yeah, of those? I also, I was also myself in Neighbours at one point. So, uh, but did you nail it? Did you nail yourself? Oh, oh, no, actually, I didn't. It was terrible. <laughs> I chewed the scenery. Um Anyway, so on the day that I didn't get into, I remember in the newspapers back in the day in Brisbane, when we, um, you'd find out if you got into uni, if your name got in the paper, right. And on the day that I saw all my friends, mate, my, my mate's names in the paper, getting into their courses, I could not find my name the day I did not get into university. I was like, what the hell do I do now? And my buddy Shane called me up and said, Hey, my, my cousin's band's looking for a lighting guy. And I said, yes, I'll do that. And, um, that's it. I started as a roadie when I was seventeen, and I just, so I kind of just fell into it, really. And then about nineteen, it's a really interesting thing. About a year of being a roadie into it, um, my old school guidance counselor, who had watched me graduate a year before, so I'd left school for a year. She gave me a call. And she says, "Come in and have a chat with me." I'm like, "I haven't been at school for a year. What's what's going on?" Anyway. She knew that all I wanted to do was music. She knew that all I, you know, that's all I knew how to do and all I wanted to do and all I could do. And she kind of had an idea that I wasn't really doing that. So I I was essentially no longer her going concern, but she still called me in. She called me up at home. And then, so I went into my old school as an 18 year old and, you know, everyone's running around in uniforms and it was really weird. She sat me down. She told me about this TAFE course. She goes, look, you should go audition for this TAFE course. And so I went and did, I went and auditioned for this TAFE course and, um, it was a contemporary music course at South Bank in Brisbane and I don't know, there's like fifteen hundred people that auditioned and I was one of them. I was a bass player and I got in and um I got up on stage and I got under the lights and went, Oh, that's right, this is what I do. And it kind of went from there. Um i you know, I, I kept being a roadie and um playing in bands and I was at a, you know, playing in you know, original bands in Brisbane, which means I was on the doll. And I was got, I got quite annoyed at, you know, it's like, well, this is kind of tough, not making any money. I'm like, There's got to be something I can do that's adjacent to what I want to do. So I, I wrote a letter to every radio station in the city, AM, FM, you name it, handwritten letter. I wrote, I don't know, 15 of them out by hand. And I posted them all the way. I said, look, I'll literally come and do anything. I'll do it for free. I don't care. I just want to come and do something. I want to be a part of it. And from my roadie days, there was a, a bar manager that I used to go and see at one in the afternoon to open the back gate to let us into this particular club when we were loading in. And that bar manager had now got a job at promotions department at a station called B one hundred and five, which is now Hit one hundred and five, like your Two Day or your Fox or or you know the Hit Network wherever you are. And he said, "I don't know that bloke," and they got me in for an interview, and um. You know, a week later I'm driving around and the Black Thunder's giving away icy cold cans of Coke and then the program director heard me do a cross back to the station and and then I started hanging out in the studio and about six weeks after I started my, um, you know, I, I I was pulling a late night shift, which is bananas to be being on air six weeks after you start driving the street team around, but I was. And it kind of, once I saw that gap, I just fell backwards into this thing that I was seemed to be good at and I really enjoyed it and I just really wanted to do it. And then I got this, you know, got this brain that won't let go once I get stuck on something and that was it. And I just worked my ass off and I just worked and worked and worked and worked and worked. And there was plenty of people that started at the same time as me. plenty of people who had more talent than me, plenty of people who are better at it than me. I don't know. The difference, the only difference I can think of is that I I just worked. I just wouldn't stop. I couldn't stop. Even
0: though you said you went for everything. Did you have an end goal in mind? Did you have was this a stepping stone? Or was you literally just trying to work out what you love to do? It was
1: it was literally that. You know, I just knew that I just wanted to chase the feeling of being good at something. That was it really. I didn't really learn to value my work. Or put a monetary value on my work until years later. I was just so grateful that someone would want to pay me for doing just talking about music, this thing that I loved. And I remember years later when I was at Channel V and I was in negotiations with my general manager at the time, Barry Chapman. And he was like, Come on, mate, push me. You gotta know what you're worth. What are you worth? I'm just happy to do whatever you want. You know, I'm happy to take what you give me. I'm just really grateful. No, you fucking idiot. You gotta What do you got to get paid what you're worth? Push, what do you want? What do you want? I'm just happy to work here. I'm just happy to, I'm just grateful that I get to, and it's like, I was so worthless. I had this, you know, just no sense of my own ability or my own value. You know, I was just happy to take whatever money they were going to give me. Um, you know, if you read my book, you'll notice that I went all the way to the other end of that spectrum and managed negotiating my way right out of a job at one point. But, uh, um, the ego had yet to rise up within me and, and take control. But, um, yeah, I was just, you know, it took me a long time to learn that value. I was just really grateful to, to be there. And, you know, that's all I really chased, man. Just, I just wanted to, you know, do something that I love to do.
0: Tell me about, because I first came across you probably like a lot of Australians, you know, when you are Andrew G on Australian Idol, but I imagine you had adopted or simplified your name earlier on. Why did that take place? Why did you feel like you had to simplify your name?
1: Oh, I didn't. It was my um, then radio boss, Craig Bruce, who's, uh, you know, he was the kingmaker of uh, that same radio network I was talking about, the kingmaker of the the two-day network or now the hit network. And um, I went down to Adelaide to do a job in the daytime. Uh, after doing Midnight to Dawn for about five years, I went down to Adelaide because I'd been, I'd had, been i would had st- would stuck with my street team nickname of Spidey, right? And uh, it was the nineties. <laughs> <laughs> how it worked, anyway. Um, I said, mate, I'd like to have my own name, It's Andrew Ginsburg, and he goes, Ginsburg, eh? Hmm, this is Adelaide. Gee, that works. <laughs> <laughs> that was it, you know. He kind of gave me the long inhale between his teeth, just kind of going, "Yeah, it might be a little too... I don't, you know. He was implying it might be a little too ethnic, a little too, <laughs> a little too much
0: to deal with for the Adelaideans. Not to be um, misunderstood with Andrew G from the Brisbane Broncos." Oh, far from it, mate.
1: No, that's Adelaide. (laughs) I've got no idea what rugby league is, mate.
0: And I guess just following on from that, why then reverting back or the change in the name back to Ginsburg in a
1: more professional sense? I think it was, you know, you grow up, you know, you become, yeah, I was 24 when that happened. And then now I'm on Idol at, when when did Idol end? Two I'm 33, no, no, 35, 35 running around with a, a teenager's nickname it's like oh, okay man I might have to grow up here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> that's probably why. And and then going to Washer, I have heard that story before but I'd love you just to kind of talk about why then the change from Andrew to Washer. Uh,
1: the short the short version is that I, I met a bloke who um told me that if I changed my name I'd change my life and I did and it did. And that's about it. You know I'm a I'm a big fan of nominative determinism. And, uh, you know, it was, a, it was a big change in my life of, you know, getting sober and, you know, leaving a part of what I was about behind me and leaving a part of, you know, ways I used to live behind me and and changing my name. You know, I'm certainly not the first person in, in my industry to do that. What you mean? People don't go by their real names. Yes, precisely. <laughs> but, you know, but changing a name has always been a, a significant signal to the rest of the community that you're you now have a different course in life you know i remember you know going to the summer holidays and miss smith was our teacher and we came back from the summer holidays and it was mrs jenkins same lady but now everything was different you know she carried herself differently she had a different way of being and you know mrs jenkins was now mrs jenkins she was no longer miss smith and you know, we've been doing that for for years, and it was very similar with that. You know, it's a much much longer story, but uh, it really helped me. Uh, in my the words of uh, Adam Zammitt, mate of mine, he goes, "You've undergone an aggressive rebrand, mate," and uh, it all worked out. <laughs>
0: That's perfect. Now you did touch on
1: that led to a lot of you know changing within yourself,
0: changing as a person, and things you briefly touched on, which I'd like to kind of explore a little bit. And look, Idol was a phenomenon in those early days, but just tell me, I guess, your path to
1: get there and what it was like being in the thick of that. The path to Idol, yeah. Look, I guess the the the, the main through line of my career is that I've just been the bloke that seemed to have what people needed. And the bloke that people knew about when they needed something, you know, it's not, it's not what, you know, no. So people say it's not what, you know, it's who, you know, well, that's not exactly true. It is what, you know, but it's also who knows what, you know. So, um, everything that I learned being a roadie helped me when I got into and everything I'd learned from being in bands and playing music and going on tour and all that kind of stuff helped me when I got to radio, it gave me a much different perspective and a, you know, a different approach to being on air and speaking with enormous passion about the music, um, was very different from some of my colleagues because I truly did get goosebumps at every pop song. You know, I wasn't just, it wasn't just a gig on another station. It was like, oh my God, oh, it's this freaking amazing song. Right. And that really informed in those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours informed And learning how to do everything at the radio station, which is radio is very much a mixture of art and science. It's very much a mixture of research and programming and learning how client relations work with programming and learning how, you know, the sales management of the station and the business works. And, you know, being very aware of, you know, look, we just, we can't play Judas Priest all day because people in Brisbane just don't want it. We're running a business here. It's going to have to be Celine Dion, as good as Judas Priest are to some people more people like to landy on that's just the fact of the matter and we're in a business so let's play music that people want to hear and you know learning that kind of aspect of the business was very important for me so then when I got to channel V I showed up with not only you know I was when I first got to channel V I was programming the music um, for our show because I learned how to use all the software. I just do it as often as I possibly could in radio. I'd learned how to make myself as indispensable as possible and learn as many jobs as I possibly could from editing to producing to programming to you know, sales relations to you know doing stuff with clients and all that kind of stuff. I just tried to learn as much as I possibly could. And so when I got to Channel V, I had all this skill set that was somewhat a bit more robust than um, other people that they were considering for the job. And then at Channel V, all that stuff was just went into overdrive as far as, you know, being boots on the ground and learning how to edit and learning how to, you know, what it means to produce and, and, and cut and, and have a vision of what something's going to look like. And then all the live stuff, just hundreds and hundreds of hours of live stuff. So by the time Idol came around, the key is you just have to make yourself undeniable. You have to make yourself undeniable. So when the choice comes as to who are going to get to do this job, they can't look past you when it came to looking they looked at other people for idol i won't say names but famously there was a you know a few very famous people that they were they were looking at as a duo that they tried to put together for idol and they they didn't get it they looked at me and jim and there was literally there was no other choice there was no other choice there was these two people that had done literally thousands of hours of live television broadcasting and live is a very different kettle of fish to standing there reading an queue in a studio without an audience. And they couldn't deny what they had with us. And there was no other choice. And chemistry is very important, isn't it? Yeah, truly. But we'd had four years to work on that. You know, there is no overnight success. You just don't see it. You know, <laughs> it's suddenly there in your face, but you may not understand that that person or those, that team has been working for years to get to that point where you suddenly become aware of them just because you suddenly become aware of them doesn't mean that they just existed out of, they just came into existence that day. Um, and that's the same with anything, anything, you know, people don't accidentally win the hundred meter sprint at the Olympics. Well, they won't this year, but you know, they, there's years and years a lifetime of training goes into it and suddenly like, Oh, who's this runner from Kenya? Who's about to beat the 10,000 meter world record. I've never heard of them before. And here they go. It's like, well, they've been training for 25 years, mate. Yeah. It's the same with any industry.
0: Now, I read this, so you can tell me if it's true or not, but you said that you forgot three years of Idol. <laughs> I don't
1: know if it was three. <laughs> <laughs> well, I guess when and why was that? No, I don't really remember the second season of, of Idol, which is 2004. And uh, I think you can thank your good friend Alcohol for that. It was a pretty blurry time, man. Yeah. It was a pretty blurry time. I know I was there footage. <laughs> there's footage there's a, there's a bunch of stuff I don't I don't really remember um, obviously there's you know there's pockets of of memory but um yeah your hippocampus can get pretty affected when you start throwing that amount of alcohol into it and um, and stress also really affects your ability to create memories uh, when I got really sick a couple of years back um and it's you know it's a particularly difficult because it was in the early years of of you know, spending time, early months of spending time with my my wife, Audrey, I can't really remember a lot of those early days that we spent together. And she has all these beautiful romantic memories of that time. And um, I was just so sick and the cortisol and all the, whatever else is going on that's blocking the memories from being formed was just firing. And so there's a lot of stuff. Plus I was on a lot of medication as well. And so I don't don't remember a lot of it, which is a real shame. Um, And there's there's a few moments that kind of pop in, but it's a lot better now. But yeah, a combo between the stress and the meds, you know, made it go away. And and that's really tough uh, to not remember, you know, really important parts of my life. And so it's been a real focus this last year with Wolfgang, our baby, coming into our life to try and be as absolutely present as possible and to work as hard as I can. And, uh, you know, it's it can be difficult. My brain can want to go and wander and escape from the room, but it's really, uh, it's a good practice to be in.
0: I want to come back to, you know, a lot of that health and happiness in a moment, but why did you then make the move over to L.A.? Was that just part of, you know, because that's what people do when they kind of make a name for themselves in this country. They feel that the next big step is to bridge L.A. and become famous over there. Or what was your thinking? Who
1: doesn't want to play the main game? Everyone. Who doesn't want to test themselves against the best in the world? Who doesn't want to, you know, go, well, okay, well, I've, I've fought Every other boxer. Who else is there? How can I win the title? How can I win the best? How can I? How can I? You know, I want to test myself against the highest. You know, in the in the biggest market on the planet, the in, biggest English speaking. Sorry, biggest English speaking market on the planet, mind you. Yeah. So yeah, of course. That's, of course, that's why you do it. You know, it's Australia's. We like to think that we're very important. We are quite tiny. We are 25 yep. million people. We're smaller than most cities in China. You know, we have a very, very small market as far as entertainment goes. And, you know, there's this 330 million people English-speaking market on the other side of the Pacific. That's a 15-hour flight away. Yeah, man. Who doesn't want to take a shot? Who doesn't want to go from the Commonwealth Games to the Olympics? Who doesn't want to give it a give it all they can while they're in their peak form and see how far they can go? And what was it like when you got your first hosting show over there? Mate, it's freaking incredible, dude. It's like you know if you've ever rest in peace tiger airlines but if you've ever flown tiger <laughs> no thanks and then flown business for emirates you're like well, okay we're getting from a to b but that's a very different experience <laughs> yeah you know it just it was just Im- incredible i can't even describe it you know the the entire season's worth of people who would watch idol would watch one episode of the show that i did over there in cbs just massive, mate.
0: And how did the, how do the shows compare like in terms of what it takes to put one together in terms oh. of our market to what what gets thrown into a show
1: in LA? If you've ever been to um, the Formula One in Melbourne, there's the supercars. Yep. All right. It's a pretty big deal. You know, you get those mad teams. I don't know if you're a, a supercars yes. kind of person. Okay, then. So you get the teams like your. Um, – the the O guys they run a mustang but you know that's a pretty you know nuts and bolts kind of thing and you go yeah. a couple down and then you got the dick johnson team pensky mustangs and you're like holy shit these guys are on it they've got all the telemetry they've got it all going on they're you know they're all in uniforms that everything's packed away all the all the drills and you know ratchet guns and everything's all kind of very neat and tidy everything's great and then you walk a hundred meters down the road uh, into pit lane and you go and see the McLaren pit and you're like, Holy (laughs) shit. Oh, okay. That's pretty much how I could describe it. Like they both get cars on the road, but there's some very, there's very different speeds (laughs) and there's very, very different standards of operation (laughs) as, as incredible and slick as the, you know, the winning supercars teams are. And, you know, you know, Penske, obviously, um, DJ you know, doing incredibly well. Um, the the Mustangs there. Um and they they run a very, very, very tight ship. And yet to go and down like and see what a Mercedes pit looks like or the, you know, the Ferrari pit, like you can't even it's like a spaceship. Yeah. Incredible. You know? That's about the difference. <laughs> Why well, make the choice to come back to Australia? Was
0: it a forced choice or what was, you know, was it a positive or a negative experience that you kind
1: of left LA to come back to Australia for? I left America in 2015. I was, you know, things were very, very different, mate. I was, uh, by that point I'd been, I'd been, uh, you know, my first marriage had ended about four years prior. I was kind of teetering on being very, very sick. I had been very sick. Um, I had episodes of, um, psychosis that manifested as paranoid delusions. I was very, very ill. Trump had just won the Republican nomination and I had already met Audrey and and Georgia. And I thought, okay. These two women are just so incredible and so much fun and so delightful. There really isn't anything in America. There is no TV show. There is no no project that I could get up that is more exciting, more interesting, more fun than spending time with these two people. There's no job here that is as good as hanging out with these two people. Combining that with like, do I want to be in a country where Trump's won? Or do I want to be a country where Trump has lost? combined with oh, I could get really sick again and I'm still kind of teeter on the edge of being really sick. Do I want to get committed? Cause I was really looking down the barrel of that, right? Yep. Do I want to end up embroiled in the mental health system in North America? No, I do not. And so that was it. I packed up my shit and I left. And, um, you know, as you grow older, it's important to remember that things change and what I wanted in my twenties or thirties is no longer what I wanted. You know, I, At the time, the most important thing that could possibly happen was to get on American television and get a job in America and, and make a living there and do that sort of thing. And then later on, the most important thing was spending time with this incredible woman, Audrey, and hanging out with Georgia and having fun with those guys, and there was no amount of money, no job, no nothing that was as good. And that was it, I was done, packed up my stuff and left. And that's, and you know, that's fine. I mean, we spoke about Craig Bruce before. Craig has a great line. He said, the day, and I've done this a few times in my career. He said, the day that your heart doesn't race before you turn the mic on, get out of the chair and let someone else have a go. Because if you don't love it, you know, it's time for you to leave because you will just end up resenting it. And what happens is you end up resenting the job and then it becomes a horrible circle. But I've done that. I've done that in radio. I did that with LA. I just went, you know what? Someone else should try this this I should reserve I should get out of this spot and let someone else who's really bloody hungry get into this because it's time for me to go. And it's important to notice that because if you stay longer than you should, and we've all seen people like that. We've all seen people in our industries that have But like, what are you doing here? Can't do something that you love. Yeah. <laughs> all you do is you turn up to work and you hate it. So, <laughs> it's not worth it, man. You just you know, you hate yourself, your family doesn't like you, you know, <laughs> it's just a grind. Don't do it confines it's not worth it it's not worth it Yo, our lives are too short our lives are too damn short
0: and is that the same thinking you mentioned before about how you kind of first love was music and you're obviously still a very talented musician do you still have thoughts and dreams about taking that further
1: <laughs> look the music industry is a very different thing to what it was mate uh the only place you're making money in music is either selling your songs to adverts or playing live shows and there's no live shows happening for a couple of years man so Playing music is a tough gig right about now. Um, I'm just happy to, I've got a you know a couple of guitars lying around here in the studio. So, I'm, you know, I'm happy to just noodle around. I don't know if I'd want to start a band at this point. Jesus, hard, 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 hard. You know, it was hard 25 years ago when I was giving it a shot. And there was, people were still making money selling units. And now <laughs> music's free. You can't make money selling a unit. You can only make money selling a ticket or a t-shirt. Real hard, man. Real hard. If you could be in any band in the world, which one would it be and why? God, if I could be in any band in the world. Yep. Far out. Probably The Roots because you get to play with Questlove and get jam on hip-hop. It's pretty fun. That was one of the funnest. That or the two funnest bands I ever played in. Oh, Every band I played in was fun, but I played in a really fun hip-hop band for a while called Resin Dogs. I played double bass in Resin Dogs that was just super fun great vibes and um i also played in a country band again i played double bass in a country band for a while the country band was called the crying skies so country <laughs> and i really loved that oh, maybe i wouldn't mind you know i'm i'm getting into that age i might you know, grow the beard out and play some country. We'll see what happens. Go a white buffalo and see what happens. Yeah, nice.
0: Now getting into, I guess, more of the creativity side of of your career. You're also a very prolific podcaster. What do you enjoy most about the format? That's different to radio.
1: Um, I think podcasting is particularly special because it's a very intimate form of broadcasting. People listen to podcasts deliberately, and they tend to listen to. Uh, So they listen to podcasts deliberately and actively. People tend to listen to radio passively. Mm -hmm. Radio just is on. That's the thing that's on when I drive to work. You know, whatever it is, I'll take it. Whatever song it is, whatever talking about, whatever they're talking about, whatever competition they're running, whatever whoever they're interviewing, I'll just get what I'm I'll take what I'm given. Podcasting is a no, this is my time. This is my 25 minutes or whatever my commute is. I am going to take in this nerdy physics podcast or this interesting conversation or this true crime story or this you know, panel show where people are laughing about the most interesting fact they found out this week or these two people de- deconstructing my favourite TV show and I will deliberately and actively engage in it. It becomes a very different listening experience. It's kind of like, because you've got skin in the game when you listen to a podcast. You've taken the time to download it. And you've deliberately played it, so you're already committed, and you've already given it a little more attention, a little more en- enrollment than you otherwise would have if you're just passively flicking around the dial and you heard a song you like. You know, the deliberate listening is something that has has come to us now. I mean, it's the thing. Deliberate viewing is the thing that ended uh, the music television because you could you no longer had to wait for them to play your favourite Naughty by Nature song. Um, you could just roll it up on YouTube and just watch it again and again and again and again. You know, so similarly, you know, you don't request radio has gone away because I can just listen to the same song 20 times in a row on Spotify if I want.
0: Yep.
1: And, you know, similarly, you're never invested in it. It's like buying a movie ticket. Even if the movie sucks, you probably won't work out, walk out because you're pot committed. You've got the sunk cost situation going on. So same with podcasting. You've kind of got the sunk cost thing. You're like, you've already given it just a little bit more attention. And I think that changes the listening experience quite a fair bit. And it's a very intimate form of broadcasting. Um, I don't know about you, but when I listen to my favorite podcast, I like to pretend that those people are my friends. Oh, absolutely. And they're only talking to me because I'm the only one listening. I'm always listening in earbuds or in my car by myself. I rarely listen to a podcast with another person.
0: And I've noticed your podcast has evolved as well. Yeah. Why did you change the name from the Osher Ginsburg show to Better Than Yesterday?
1: Because uh, it does what it says on the box, man. I like, I like things that do what they say on the box. I always have. And... Yeah, calling it the Ginsberg Podcast was just like it's just what we called it, and because uh, so I didn't know what else to call it, that was the the best I could go for as far as you know familiarity when it came to scrolling through a, a list of podcasts. Like, oh, that's that guy. That's that guy. that's changed his name, didn't he? Used to be something else, anyway. And then to call it better than yesterday, well, that's because that's ended up that ended up being what the show started to be more about than anything else. And it was it's really significant since we changed the name of it. It's done extraordinarily well. And I'm really grateful for that. It also gives my guests an idea of what the conversation's going to be about. And, um, it's really good. I'm really enjoying it. You know, I really, and everything evolves, man. There's no, if I, like if you listen to the early shows, there's a massive, like heavy metal intro and the conversations are that of a single bloke who's, you know, just starting out and figuring it out. And now, you know, I'm married, got two kids, got a house again, you know, things are good. And, um, why wouldn't the show evolve? The show evolves along with the listeners. Everyone's Everyone else is eight years older. Why shouldn't the show be? Aside from the interview
0: episodes, you also regularly do your checking in apps. Why why do you do those?
1: Well, I started just one day, I just turned the mic on and I just started talking about what was going on in my week. And I had been quite, as I mentioned, i had been quite ill and um, it was uh, important for me to talk about that and to discuss what was happening in my day and, you know, to just open up the mic and just start having a conversation about my mental health, Um, my ability to get better, certainly my ability to get sober, a very big, a big part of that relied on hearing other people's stories of how they were going and listening to other people's travels and understanding that, oh, it's not just me. And I just wanted to give people the experience that, no, it's not just, it's not just you you know, this is me going through this. And, you know, I'm a big fan of you can't be what you can't see. And you may not have ever had modeled towards you how to have a conversation about what is going on with your head and and, and try and verbally deconstruct what the story is and why do you feel these weird feelings in your body and what's actually going on. Um, And so that was also a part of it. And That part of the show started to get really, you know, people started to really get interested in that. And that part of the show started to get almost as long as the interview or longer than the interview. And I thought, well, hang on a second. This is going to have to become a different part of the show now. And so uh, I've split it into two. So Mondays I speak with a guest and Fridays I speak with, my listeners and um lately i've been really enjoying doing that check-in live on twitch which has been really fun um you know kind of taking some q and a's and having a bit of a check-in there and taking some questions on twitch it's been really good i'm really enjoying it because well, a lot of other podcasts that i would listen to they
0: they will often talk about how it's those real admissions the boring stuff they might perceive in their life is the stuff that resonates the most with their audience do you find that mate
1: there's no time left to be inauthentic i think the time of the inauthentic or false or kind of facade of a broadcaster, um, there's a time and a place for that. You know, I certainly don't want the people on the six o'clock news to tell me how they feel about what's going on. I don't want any editorial when it comes to reporting facts. Though I have, it's been a long time since I've gone to the six o'clock news for facts. Um, it's true though. Uh, you know, it's a time and a place for that, and I think podcasting allows the opportunity to be authentic in a way that is impossible in many other traditional format, forms of broadcasting. And I'm, I'm really grateful for that. I really enjoy it. And it seems to resonate quite a lot. And uh, I really enjoy the connection that that brings. You know, I love reading the emails. And I love hearing the voices of the people that that talk uh, to me when I meet them. Because, you know, I like to listen to other podcasts and hearing other people talk about their stuff because it makes me feel less alone. And so I just like to give a bit of that as well. Absolutely, mate. That really resonates to me as well.
0: Now, do you prefer any particular format out of TV, radio, or podcasting, or are they just different,
1: mate? It's it's all everything. You go for what you want, you know. It's like, do you want to eat peanut butter and banana for the rest of your life? No, you have that at every, you know, when you want it. You have a little taste here, a little taste there. I do love some peanut butter and banana. Right? <laughs> I just had some, to be honest. Um, you know, it's 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 what you feel like on the day. Um, you know, there's a time and a place for everything. I love dig shiny floor telly. I love the masked singer. I love whispery, quiet, dramatic. Romance. I love the Bachelor, the Bachelorette. I love it, and I love. I'm loving Twitch. I'm loving live streaming on Twitch and and doing silly game shows, um, live on on Twitch on a Tuesday. It's super fun, and I love podcasting. I love the conversations. I love the connections that I have with people. I really enjoy it. Really grateful for it, man. And how do you pick and
0: choose between the various different shows? Because I assume you get offered a lot and even including shows like you
1: know Bondi Rescue where you only do the voiceover for. What makes your decision? Uh, Unemployed Me says yes. (laughs) It's a pretty simple process. Even though Unemployed Me hasn't been 100% unemployed for quite a while, seven years, it's still a very fresh memory being nearly 40 and unemployed. So I tend to say just, I just say yes to stuff. Um, And then I have to... Back paddle and uh, deal uh, with you know what saying yes to everything means, and then trying to figure out how I can manage all the time and everything. But yeah, I got a mortgage and school fees, man. <laughs> so, I say after after this, I'm, I'm I'm shooting a thing for a client. I'm doing something else for someone. I'm gonna go cut sandwiches for money. If there's a check. I'm there. So you can take the Michael Caine quote
0: where he said, um, he never saw Jaws four, but he saw the house it bought, and it was beautiful.
1: That's a pretty good line. <laughs> I never saw George fall, but I saw the house that her money I bought. It was a beautiful house. <laughs> just imagine how he said it. Yeah.
0: Look, you've interviewed some amazing people. Who would you, do you have a favorite or even a
1: top three people that you might have met or spoken with? Come on, man. <laughs> well, just like right now at this moment, uh, the best there are is uh, in no particular order is uh, Dwayne Johnson, uh, Madonna, and um, uh, let's say uh, uh, Noel Gallagher. It's a pretty good three. Yeah, it's a pretty good three.
0: I um I met Vin Diesel once, and he could barely get a word out. So <laughs> at least you've had some great Hollywood uh interviews. Mate, everyone
1: has a bad day at work. <laughs> everyone has a bad day at work. I've experienced Vin on, on a great day. Yeah, you know. Never know what kind of day someone else is having, man. You never know. True. Now, look,
0: the energy in show, the tone and energy on a show like The Masked Singer is obviously completely different to something like, you know, The Bachelor, when you have to be a lot more sincere. But you know, do you, is there ever a time you get confused and you might come on set and excitedly evict someone from a rose ceremony? Or no, no, man. the
1: jobs, a job. <laughs> They're two completely different jobs, and you know, those jobs, I, I'm, it's not about me on those shows. Uh, and never is about me. I'm just the conduit between the audience and the action, and um, and that's it. And I'm I'm happy to be that. You know, it's it's you know, if they have to cut giant parts of my workout, which they often do, um, that's fine. I don't I don't mind. You know, because it's not about me. It's not about how much time I got on camera. It's about did these people find love and did we tell that story right? Because that's what the show is. You know, and it's really important that you don't confuse your own role with the greater cause.
0: And you've now got obviously a lot more of an emotional attachment with the Bachelor franchise. It's been a huge part of yours, but you've also got a very personal connection with your wife that came about through the Bachelor,
1: didn't you? We uh, yeah, we met some my friend Carla, who was my makeup artist, and we we've known each other for a long time. She was a child, but a child in high school doing work experience when we first met, and now uh, some twenty one years later, um, we're still working together. Um it was our first we spent our first day in television together and she's uh, my hair and makeup artist and has been for a very long time and she introduced me to my wife Audrey who um, uh, through Carla because Carla said look I can't do work with you on bachelor next week because I said yes to this other job so I've gone for five days but I've got someone to come and look after you and you're welcome and sure <laughs> enough uh, showed up and uh, I waited until we weren't working together you know, I waited until that five days had passed because everyone deserves to go to work and not be hit on. And so I waited until after that that week had gone and then, you know, reached out. And thankfully, Audrey fought very hard against all the kinds of bananas bullshit that was going on in my head that I described earlier. And she managed to fight her way through it all. And um, she held on and we we're thankfully still together. We've got two great kids and life's great.
0: And just going into, I guess, some of that personal style um, which is also a form of creative expression and mate, you've done it all you've done the ponytail the bleached hair right through to eccentric tailored suits and manicured hair on the mask singer are you driving this ship or do you get railroaded by your stylist
1: ah there's no railroading at all uh, <laughs> I work very closely no, there's one there's not stylists there's only one person her name's Melissa Byrne she's ex- exceptional there might have been a time with the hair stuff that I just kind of let the people who are doing my hair do whatever they wanted And um, I just took their lead and it seemed to have worked out. Nowadays, I work closely with Melissa and, uh, you know, I let her know, look, this is kind of what I'd like to work, kind of go towards. And then I trust her very, very much uh, about what she sees that I can pull off and what. And I think that's that's a big part of that styling is, you know, there's clothes that I can't pull off and there's clothes that I can. And that's got to do with your personality in many ways. And Melissa knows me quite well, and she's able to go right, yorick yeah, and he can he can work with this. And then certainly when it came around to Masked Singer, I showed her a couple of photos. I'm like, look, because it was very secret um, project when it was first starting. Uh, I showed her a couple of photos, and look, there's this thing coming up we're going to need a bunch of suits that look like this. And I showed her a few pictures. I said, is there anyone in Australia that can help us make these kind of things? And then she saw the scope and which went, Oh, really? I said, yeah, it's going to have, to, I'm going to be standing next to like a giant six foot tall, you know, goanna or whatever. Uh, and I can't just be in a regular suit. It's going to have to be, you know, I'm in this, in a two shot, like the so two of us on camera at the same time um, next to a, a costume that's been designed by uh, someone who's won an Oscar and Emmy, a BAFTA, a Tony, like this guy is like the best costume designer on the planet we're going to have to meet that in the same frame. So we're going to need something pretty good. She goes, all right. And um, she took that brief and ran with it. And what you see is a result of Mel's incredible hard work and all the fabric choices and all those things are hers. And um, she works with a tailor up in Brisbane uh, called Will Veller. And those guys have made, you know, that particular look really, really shine. And, um, but it all comes from, you know, conversations that have, that I have with Mel, because ultimately, you know, there was a a stylist who with for a while. there called Tyler, Sheridan Tyler. And he really showed me, it's a really important thing. When you put someone in an outfit, don't look at what it looks like on their body. Look at their face when they see themselves in the mirror. If they don't love it, they're not going to be able to rock it. That's it. It may look great on them. But if they don't feel it, it's not worth it because uh, they'll see it in their face. And Sheridan are just like, nah, take it off. It looks great on you, but you don't like it. So take it off. I'm like, I'm sorry, man. He goes, it's fine. Don't worry about it. Try this instead. And, you know, sure enough, it would work. And, you know, that's that's it.
0: This seems like a good then point. I promised my kids they could have, because they're big fans of The Masked Singer. So I said they could have one question each. Yeah, go. My daughter, Myla, she wants to know what was the
1: best performance on The Masked Singer from your point of view? Oh, man. This year, uh, there was a performance from Queen that was so beautiful with these two um, contemporary dancers in these giant silks, basically, trying to reach each other but ultimately never touch. And as someone who's a bit of a dance dad, I've, you know, done my time um, taking a little girl with, you know, 17 different costumes (laughs) to an Tedford every Saturday for a long time. Um, She's, uh, you know... Love contemporary dance and, you know, to be able to show that kind of thing on primetime TV was really important and it was really, it was so beautiful and it's been so long since we've had that kind of dance on telly at primetime. It was really nice. So I'd say that would be my favourite.
0: And Oscar, he's got a bit of a two-parter. One's a question, the other one's more of a statement. But his question is, who is your favourite contestant aside from
1: that performance? Oh, Ozzy, what am I going to say to you? Um, I think yeah. my favourite contestant on Masked Singer... I'm going to say Bush Ranger. She was great. Because Bush Ranger just gave it stacks and had me convinced she was Jessica Mowboy, 100%. <laughs> yeah. And then the hat came off. I'm like, oh, crikey, it's you, Bonnie. It was
0: great. <laughs> great moment. Amazing voice for not necessarily a professional
1: singer. Well, that's got to say, mate, what does it say to you about the music industry Absolutely. when that person, the only job that person can find is acting? Mm. What does it say to you about when someone who's got a voice like that and a look like that? Cannot make a living as a pop singer that is that's an, that's an issue yeah okay that's a problem
0: and uh, so oscar's other statement was he said, Can you please ask the editors on the show' if they can show the person's face before you announce who they are.
1: Ah. (laughs) He's saying he's hearing you say who they are before he sees their face. Sorry, mate. Um, (laughs) I don't have any control over it. I apologize. (laughs) I can run it past the bosses, but sorry, man. Nice. And look, I also want to make mention at this point of our mutual friend, Rachel
0: Barrett, who I used to work with, you know, way back when is your current manager. And knowing how creative and quirky she is, you two seem like a great partnership, but tell me how important she is to your
1: career. I have a, uh, so nobody does anything alone in this world, right? And I have an extraordinary team uh, that I work with. Lauren Miller, who's my manager, and Rachel Barrett, who's my other manager. But Rachel is also the executive producer of everything that I do. Rachel executive produces the podcast. She executive produced the live show that I worked on. She is, it's super, super important to have someone else, someone in your life to bounce ideas off and someone who's aligned with your visions and you know, when I come up with these bananas ideas about stuff and I say, this is what I want to do, Rachel. She's like, yep, I can make that happen. Or when Rachel says, I've got this idea and it looks like this, I'm like, I'm a hundred percent in. Uh, because I'm really grateful to work with a, a fantastic team of people. Um, it's kind of weird because you've got to put your your product hat on. And so I like to always say to people like, look, you are the CEO of whatever, you know, you're the CEO of Dean Industries, all right? So you've got a CFO, you've got a marketing manager, you've got an HR department, you've got, you know, a a maintenance sector, you've got, you know, sales, you've got accounting, um, you've got product development, you've got client relations, you've got all these departments and you have to, you know, any other business would, you know, allocate time and resource to these things. And similarly, I do that as well. You know, I'm the CEO of Osher Inc., all right, and I have to look after marketing product image logo you know <laughs> public facing communications, corporate comms, client relations accounting, all that kind of stuff all right and i can 't do all of it by myself, and there's some things that other people are far better at it than me, and so I work with other people who who do those those things for me and that's uh, you know i think that 's a really important way to look at it and Rachel is She's since she's been working with me, I should say. This, since I've been working with her, life has been extraordinary. The first time we met, I, I was I was mostly naked, um, but I'll let I'll let her tell you that story. <laughs> Fair enough. Now, look, I want to get into a bit more of the health and happiness side
0: of things, starting with the date, Feb twenty first, two thousand and fourteen. Yeah, which I guess you've already touched on previously, but then how I guess that led into you writing your book. And doing that stage show, which was amazing.
1: Oh, thanks, man. Um, Yeah, look, that was the day that I first started experiencing really, like I'd already been quite ill like, with anxiety and I was not doing very well at all. And that was the day that my anxiety had flipped up into where reality had started to bend and twist and glitch in and out and the delusions started to kick in and I'd start to see and hear things that weren't there. And it was very, very frightening. Very, very, very frightening. Um, It was a long, long, long path, long journey to get anywhere near better. But like anything, like I was just describing, it takes a team. And, you know, I guess the first thing you really have to do is to admit, you know, it's like, uh, so I'm sober and the part of staying sober in my the way I try to stay sober is there's, there's uh, how shall I put this, there's steps involved. And the first step is to admit that there's a problem and admit that you're powerless over it and admit that it's going to take something bigger than you to help it get better. And so I really just took that approach and I didn't want to admit that this was happening. I didn't want to accept that I was feeling this stuff in my head and, and I, I you know, lost the ability to discern f- fantasy from reality, but I had to. And I had to admit that the thoughts that I was having and the ways I was thinking about things weren't enough, and that I needed something bigger than me if I wanted to get better. And so I started listening to ideas that weren't mine. That means, you know, just listening to what the psychologists and the psychiatrists were telling me and just doing what they said, even if, you know, I didn't understand why. Just understand that, look, my best thinking left me crazy. So I might have to listen to someone else's thinking. And see what happens there, because that's what worked when I needed to get sober. My best thinking got me, you know, divorced and you know, career in tatters and you know, unemployed and all that kind of stuff. So I'm like, might be better to listen to something else's, someone listen to somebody else's ideas for a while and just do what they tell me. And what do you know, things got better. Same with you know, my mental health. Take the meds, do the work, push through it. Um, listen to what they tell you. And if you're not getting better, you know, find look at other ways it might work. And you know, just keep working at it, keep working at it. I had to try a few different therapists and a few different modalities before we we clicked on the thing that actually, you know, really started to make a difference and started to move the needle. But that's the way it always is. It's not like a a bone fracture where you whack a cast on it and six weeks later you're you're back to normal. Every single mental health, you know, or mental illness is different, as different as the person, you know, and it takes a different treatment and a different medication protocol and I had to change meds. I don't know, like five different times. I have to change different finds of different dosages, different everything's until we found out what worked. but that's just what what it takes. And you just gotta do it every day. You just gotta do it every day, man. And, you know, similarly I was I was three minutes late for you today because I trained this morning and um I I have to train every day. And I don't train to uh be thin. I don't train to fit into my suits. That is a nice uh byproduct but I train to uh, give my body the gift of the hormones it needs to shift mood states throughout the day. So if I train, I release dopamine, serotonin, norepinephrine, uh, endorphins into my bloodstream that allow my body to change from not feeling so great to, you know, thinking about things differently and then maybe feeling a bit better. But when I don't have those hormone levels up in my body, it's much harder to do that. And so that's why I train every day to, to make sure that I give my body the gift of the hormones it needs to shift mood states throughout the day. And that's really, really important. But it's an everyday thing, man. You go, you don't get anyone that's ever, I don't know, done a 10K or whatever. Like you do your 10K and you go, great, Ripper, done it. And then a month later, someone says, let's go for a run. And you are staffed You know, you get half a kilometer down the road. You're like, what happened? I could run 10 kilometers last month because your body detrains very quickly. So similarly, if you want to keep physically fit, you've got to train you know at least 3 or 4 times a week if you want to keep mentally fit you got to train all the time that's just how it works you you don't just accidentally get better it takes work it takes yes. hard work and but it's worth it and the life of discipline that i have now what i get out of it it's it's really it's really worth the effort that i put into it
0: and you should be commended for that as well, mate. Now, just in terms of the future and what's next, obviously COVID put a real spanner in the works for the entertainment industry this year, which you experienced firsthand. But how do you think we might recover from this period or what do you see the industry might look like next after we kind of break free from this?
1: I think like the, the, the one thing that humans are really, really, really good at is adapting, is adaptation. That is what we're the, probably the best at. We adapt to our surroundings or we shift our change our surroundings to, to f- fulfill our needs. And we will adapt. We will change. We will adapt and adjust and accept what we cannot change and we will figure out ways around it. And, you know, we're just going to find different ways to socialize. We'll find different ways to make, you know, live entertainment. We'll find different ways to, to connect as a community. We just are. You know, and there's plenty of interesting solutions that are happening. And, But that's not to say that we can't, you know, then find that ability to connect over the phone or, or have a conversation, you know, a physically distanced conversation with somebody. Um, but yeah, I think, you know, the businesses that are built on having many, many people in a room, restaurants, nightclubs, pubs, you know, cinemas, theatres, whatever, we'll all find other ways to do it they have to they will because art is a vital important of any community and artistic expression and storytelling is a vital important part of any community and we'll find out ways to do it we'll adjust we'll figure it out and do you see a shelf life for
0: your own i guess on camera career do you have any concerns about that what else may you do down the future or do you see yourself even stepping away altogether and doing something completely different
1: mate i've got a mortgage and school fees i'm going to do this as long as i possible (laughs) dude come on Why would you seriously ask me, does your career have a shelf life? Fuck, I hope not, man. I've got at least another 18 years of school fees to pay. I've got a one-year-old baby, so I've got to figure out how to be doing this when I'm 60, man.
0: And I'm sure you will be, mate. Now, you've lived an incredible life so far. What advice do you have for other people looking to enter down a similar career path, also considering the changes happening to the industry?
1: Look, whatever it is that you try, whatever it is that you do, there's two things that I would say. My old manager in LA, John Faraday used to always say, only, you know, how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. So whatever it is that you want to be in, whether it be, I don't know, structural engineering or, you know, figuring out, you know, geothermal energy or stringing power lines or being the best TV antenna lady that there is, whatever it is, only you, when you lie in bed at night, do you know, oh yeah, I might've missed out on that job, but... I really gave it everything. Or you line at night and I go, I missed it on that job. Yeah, i stayed stay at home and flick through Instagram for two hours that morning instead of going out and doing that thing. Oh, only you know that, all right? So only you know how hard you've worked to make your dreams come true. So bear that in mind. And the other thing I would say is there really is no choice except to accept what you cannot control, act on the things that you can, and adapt to the rest. You know, that's it. I can't control you know, what's happening with COVID-19, what can I control? Okay, I can control what I eat today, control how much I sleep, I can control how connected I am with other human beings today. Can I adapt my life around these new protocols of living and being? Yep, I can because that's in accordance with my values. All right, I can adapt and, and still take action in accordance with my values. Great. All right, that's it. That's all we can do as humans because on March 10, we were all excited about going to the Grand Prix and having a great time and, you know, booking our Easter holidays. March 16, we're like, shit, nobody leave the house. That could happen any day of the week. And we just have to remember that.
0: And one final question, and it's something I'm asking every guest, but could you nominate one other person that might be a great guest
1: for me to speak to? Oh, man. What, it is, what is it that you want to get out of your podcast?
0: It's called Lifting the Lid. I love getting in, into the minds of people that have lived interesting lives, um, whether that's in sport, entertainment, any field really. You know, it's
1: really those people that have a story to tell you know, that may not have necessarily been heard. Well, you, 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 Well, she's written books, but it's always interesting to have a chat with her. I reckon you should get Clementine Ford on the show. She's a fantastic human being and she would be very interesting to speak to. Perfect mate
0: um thank you so much obviously i know you're one of the busiest people in australian (laughs) entertainment at the moment so look i really appreciate you taking your time out to chat with me and look i loved it i could have spoken to you for another hour i've probably got another hour's worth of questions we might have to make that we'll make that a part two down the track
1: maybe all right thanks for getting these questions (laughs) in i really appreciate it thanks osha see you later
0: So there you have it, Osher Ginsberg. For someone with such a big public profile, I really applaud Osher for being so brave and honest with his mental health journey. He continues to provide such hope and inspiration for many people facing similar demons. I've started to discover similar themes for all of my guests on Lifting the Lid around authenticity, hard work and determination and Osher is certainly the epitome of all of those. His podcast is better than yesterday and there's no doubt you'll see him on your TV screen for years to come because as he said, He's got a mortgage and school fees to pay. I hope you enjoyed our chat. We've got great guests coming up, so hit that subscribe button and I'll catch you soon. Cheers. Thanks for listening. Tune in to Lifting the Lid next time when we talk to someone else.